to Mr. Radio, and I'm your host, Marshall. Awarded the 2012 United States Artists Friends Fellow in recognition of the excellence of his work, today's guest has been an inspiration to many other progressive musicians. He has been playing the banjo since 1963 and worked on the soundtrack for Driving Miss Daisy. His 2007 album, Double Banjo Bluegrass Spectacular, featured appearances by Steve Martin, Earl Scruggs, and many other banjo luminaries. The recipient of two International Bluegrass Music Association Awards, as well as a Grammy nomination, he also received the award for Banjo Player of the Year from the International Bluegrass Music Association. The New York Times has referred to him as the father of modern bluegrass. It is my honor to introduce today's guest, Tony Trishka. Welcome to the show, Tony. Thank you, Marshall. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. We opened our show with Big Round Top March, Drummer Boys, from your latest album, Shall We Hope. I, I want to talk about that album, but first I have a few questions. Uh, when I was in high school, even though I failed at mastering, playing the flute, or carrying a tune with my voice, I had several musician friends who, who excelled at percussion and wind instruments, but I don't think that I knew any banjo players. What started you playing the banjo at 16? How did that happen? Well, let's see. I actually started when I was 14. Uh, I was living in Syracuse, New York, and this was a, kind of the middle of the folk scare of the early 60s, as some people refer to it. And um, I was the very first album I ever got first record I ever got was the Kingston Trio at large. The Kingston Trio was this major folk group at the time. They'd be on the cover of Life magazine, etc. Anyway, I listened to the very first song on the album, which is called MTA. And there's a banjo solo there by their banjo player, Dave Gard. And there were 16 notes in that banjo solo that just floored me. And I was already playing folk guitar and writing protest songs at the age of 13. But then I heard the banjo and it was uh, meant to happen, I guess. I just fell in love with the banjo, badgered my parents for some months till Christmas time. I got my long neck crispy banjo and I was off and running. That was it. And so you never returned. I, you know the song. <laughs> yes, I never returned. I'm still on that MTA going around and around Boston, yes. Well, my initiation to the banjo was listening to Johnny Horton and the Battle of New Orleans. And, you know, as great as Google is, I still haven't been able to figure out whether he was playing the banjo on that record or somebody else. But who else made it besides the Kingston Trio? Who else made it to your record player? Well, I was also listening to the Limelighters, another big folk group, and their banjo player, Alex Hasselev. Uh, maybe it wasn't, I can't say it was an inspiration, but I loved hearing his banjo player because Dave Gard was everything to me. And there were other banjo players. Uh, I had the Chad Mitchell trio album and a guy named Jim McGuinn was their banjo player. That's Roger McGuinn of the Birds. He was their backup musician in those days. Uh, but anyway, after hearing the Kingston trio and falling in love with the banjo, I wanted to hear more banjo. And some, I said, where else can I hear this? And some, some, someone said, listen to Earl Scruggs, whoever that guy is. And so I bought this Flatt and Scruggs album called the Folk Music of Our Land, Folk Songs of Our Land on Columbia Records. And that got me deeper into it. And then where, where else can I hear banjo music? Oh, you have to listen to Bill Monroe and then the Stanley Brothers. And I got deep into bluegrass and I'm still deep into bluegrass. I still, especially the, the first uh, wave of bluegrass guys, but yeah. I know that uh, you wanted to speak about your new album, and, and we opened up with Big Round Top March, Drummer Boys, and that's from your latest album, Shall We Hope. 
are you a, a Civil War buff? How, how did you come about putting this together? Well, it's it's interesting. I can't call myself a Civil War buff, and there are people that go to all the battlegrounds and you know are immersed in it. I'm not that. When I was a kid, I got the American Heritage Civil War book, a big, thick book from my parents. And I think that probably sparked my imagination in that direction. And I would look at it from time to time. But it started 12 years ago. I had written my last album before this one, which was called Great Big World. It was on Rounder Records. And I'd started writing lyrics. I wrote a song about Wild Bill Hickok, you know, with lyrics, because here's a guy that's un- underrepresented. Billy the Kid, I got songs, not too much about Wild Bill Hickok. And I felt sorry for him, so I wrote the song. And I got Jack Elliott to sing it, which is a great honor, needless to say. Uh, but anyway, so I, I was sort of in this lyric writing mode instead of writing yet another banjo tune. And I decided to write a song about riverboat gambler in Mississippi. And I took as a, uh, you know, as a framework for that, a Jimmy Rogers blue yodel kind of a thing and put the music to that I and mean, put the lyrics to that. And then I just started getting, well, I'm going to write a song about this woman who emigrates from Ireland to America because of the potato famine. This all in the mid 1800s. And after a while, the pieces started falling together. And I, I'm starting to see, oh, there's a story here. I can, I can connect these things rather than having just these individual songs. I can turn this into something. And that, that's, that was the gestation of it. It wasn't like, okay, I'm going to come up with a concept album and, and have it based on the Civil War. But it just evolved into that. And the deeper I got into it, the more research I did, I just was more and more fascinated by all these stories, that some of which have not been told or are more obscure. And one thing led to another, led to another. So um, that's how it came about initially. I think you answered... Uh, my next question partially when you said that the potato famine was part of this. So so that explains why this music, this album, to me at least, sounds like a, a soundtrack. You've got uh, storytelling, you've got classical music, you've got gospel, you've got maritime music, country, jazz, spoken word, sound effects, and also bluegrass. But you said concept album. When I look at the metadata. If somebody buys uh, something from iTunes or something, there's metadata and it tells you what genre the music is. And this album was classified as bluegrass. Is is that how you would classify your album? No, (laughs) not at all. There may be three songs on here that I would say, yeah, that you could construe that as bluegrass. Um, This was not intended as a bluegrass album. Every song evolved into whatever it evolved into most of the time the songs were uh, the lyrics came first there's one song about a great train robbery uh, called the general about union spies steal, uh, hijacking a confederate train but um i had originally written that as a banjo tune and then i put lyrics to it but every song wanted to be something whatever it wanted to be i didn't have any control over it <laughs> as odd as that may sound uh, just certain songs like, oh, yeah, that needs to be a string quartet. Uh, so, or this needs to be, as you were saying, a gospel sort of tune. Everything kind of demanded different things. And I was not trying to write in the style of music from that period, except for the aforementioned big round top march. I wanted to have a march in there, and I figured that should be period sounding. So I listened to a whole bunch of Civil War era marches, uh, you know, on YouTube. And sort of got a feel for how they sounded and then wrote my own march. 
And I was very fortunate to um, uh, have a friend, of, like, not quite friend, but certainly good acquaintance named Van Dyke Parks uh, arrange it for an eight or nine piece uh, horn band uh, you know, that would have been the size of the group that might have played that at that time. And Van Dyke Parks uh, was an amazing hero of mine, amazing musician who wrote uh, the lyrics for a lot of uh, the Beach Boys Smile album that Brian Wilson came up with. And uh, has his own, Van Dyke has his own album called Song Cycle from 67, I think that is one of the most visionary albums I've ever heard. It's incredible. Anyway, I, I digress. I believe you said you've been working on this for 12 years. Is that correct? Correct. And not, not like every day I sit down for eight hours and work on it. But, you know, I, I'm on tour. I'm working on other projects. But it, from its inception, I started writing 12 years ago. Besides YouTube, how else did you research this? A friend of mine gave me a, a book of uh, a series of books. It's like, a, it's like a, an encyclopedia set, but of Civil War. It was from like 1915 or something of Civil War photographs and stories. Uh, so that, so YouTube and, and then just, you know, going on the internet. One of the main things that really helped shape the album was in my research, I happened upon this film of a reunion of uh, survivors of Gettysburg, you know, soldiers who were still alive in their 90s, getting together at, in 1938 at Gettysburg, the 75th anniversary of the battle, and shaking hands over a stone wall, Confederates on one side, Union soldiers on the other side, still in their uniforms, many of them that they'd had for 75 years. It was sort of this rapprochement. It was this sort of healing moment. Not that their attitudes necessarily would have changed, but here we are. We're we're all in this together. We're not going to live this much longer. Let's shake hands. And that became a real focal point for this whole thing. And the song, This Favored Land, tells that story. It was a very powerful thing for me and really helped to kind of solidify my concept of this album. Because surely this country needs healing and it's starting to heal, but there's still a great division. So, and I did not intend it that way, but once this came to my attention, it was, well, let me just put this out there in some small way. Maybe this can, you know, make people think about the healing aspect of, you know, of, of what we need today. Well, you mentioned this favored land and uh, that features Phoebe Hunt and the track to me, has a mystic quality to its opening. Can you explain more about the background of this track? I have to tell you, it's my favorite tune on the album. Phoebe, she's, I can't tell you how much I love her singing, and she plays fiddle on this also, and she added three fiddle parts, and they're just amazing. I'm not in the habit of listening to my own music once it's out. It's, it's out there, you know, maybe once in a long while. Oh, what did I do back then? But this this album, I just keep listening to, and part of, part of the reason for that is because the engineer who engineered almost all of this and, and mastered and, and did the whole thing with it, mixed it. Um, his name is Lawson White, and I've never had a better engineer, and the sound he got on this was just so amazing. But that song, to me, stands out, and I, I can understand how you would feel that way. There is, I don't think of it necessarily as mystical, but I know what you're saying, and I could just about agree with you on that also. Why don't we take a listen to your favorite track on the album, This Favorite Land. White bearded, uniformed, The drums of battle are silent now. Three score that was this favored land featuring Phoebe Hunt from the latest album, Shall We Hope, performed by my guest, Tony Trishka.
since this is the penultimate, penultimate episode for my season of Mr. Radio, I, I thought of adding a new element to it, and I'm calling it fan questions. So I invited your fans to call in or write questions. Uh, are you up for trying to answer some of them? I will do my very best. You apparently have a lot of fans in New Jersey. Anyway, one fan, Mike, he asks, who was the best, most talented, funniest, nicest musician that you ever worked with? (laughs) Nicest, best, funniest. Well, uh, encapsulating all those, I guess I'd have to say Steve Martin. Certainly the funniest. No two ways about that. Although when you spend time with him, he's not, you know, he's not on, he's not funny. I mean, he'll put in these, you know, he'll say some funny little aside here and there, but he's very, he's very serious about music and very serious about the banjo. You know, I've recorded with him on my projects, two of those, and I've I produced his uh, second album of the modern era, which was a banjo album called Rare Bird Alert. So I've had a chance to spend some time with him and he's a wonderful musician, a wonderful banjo player, so I guess if they want all those three encapsulated in one person, I'd, I'd lean towards Steve Martin. You did all right on the first question. Are you, are you ready for the second question? I'm, I'm tremulous with fear, but let's go. Okay. This is another fan from New Jersey, uh, Bernie. <clears throat> and he asks, apart from your banjo-matic, which of your several <laughs> banjos is your favorite and why? <laughs> and, and for listeners not familiar with the banjo-matic, you, uh, you might want to explain that first. I do a holiday show every year. And planning on doing it this year because we missed the last year. And one of the highlights of the show is the Banjo-Matic, which is a toy banjo made by Kenner. It's like a player piano. It has this sheet with raised indentations and whatever. It goes through the banjo. You crank it. and It plays Oh Susanna or whatever. In this case, it plays Old Lang Syne at the end of the show. We bring out the Banjo-Matic, and it's a big part of the show. And that is, of course, my favorite instrument that I own. However. Um, I have a, a Deering banjo. It's my signature model Deering banjo, which is my main apps, as they say. And it's called a Golden Clipper. And uh, so I'd say that's, that's my main love. And then I've got, um, I've got this banjo right here. It's a, uh, a low-tuned banjo that was developed by Bela Fleck. And it's, called, it's made by Goldtone. And it tuned down to C, it's C chord instead of a G chord. And then I do have many other banjos, one from 1883 that was given to me uh, that I love very much. And then uh, I've got a pre-war flathead master tone, which is you know the gold standard if you want to play bluegrass, which I got many years ago by a Sonny Osborne of the Osborne Brothers. So I, and I've got others. I, I'm up to about 16 or 17 banjos these days. So, uh, But those are my main squeezes. Well, you're doing very well on answering these questions so far. They're they're going to get harder. They're oh no! Get harder. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, yeah. So we have like another. Okay. Go we ahead. have another New Jersey fan, and okay. he, uh, Bob, and he's asking, "Are you planning future recordings linking Civil War history and the banjo?" No, I'm not. I feel like I've I've covered that territory as much as I'm going to with this project, but I have other things in mind. I'm over the last couple of years. This is a very sort of back burner sort of thing, but I've been putting music to Emily Dickinson poems and I've recorded four of those, one of which was Phoebe Hunt, as a matter of fact. In fact, I had a chance to do a podcast years ago, eight years ago, someone got in touch with me and said, would you like to perform in Emily Dickinson's bedroom? They're bringing at her 
you know, the house uh, in Amherst. Uh, we're trying to bring creative people back into her, you know, where she was creating. I, I went up to the Emily Dickinson house and on the way up, I decided I would write music for one of her poems, which is called Frequently the Woods Are Pink. I just saw that opening line and thought, this is a great way to start. And my wife was driving the Fiat that she has, and I'm in the passenger seat, barely able to squeeze the banjo in there. And I wrote this music for it, and that got me started with it. Uh, I had a woman named Jill Sobule, who's a wonderful singer. She uh, sang that song. So anyway, I've got four of these recorded. And then I want to do a traditional bluegrass album. Uh, that's my next, those are my next projects anyway. Sounds like you've got your plate full of projects there. Exactly. Yep. Well, we've got two more questions, and and these came in by phone. Uh, again, another New Jersey fan. Let's let's uh, see what uh, she has to ask. Okay. Hello, hello. This is Jay Friedman calling, oh. and here's what I'd like to ask Tony. Do <laughs> you have a question you wish someone would ask you during an interview, but they never seem to? What is that question, and how would you answer it? Huh. Jay Friedman, I love you. Wow. Um, that's a really good question. I, You know, I've done so many interviews. Every once in a while, someone does ask me a question that had not been as, asked before. I honestly can't think of anything. Oh, boy, I wish someone would just ask me this. I, I can't think of anything uh, where that would be the case. Does this mean you've been stumped? I've been stumped. Jay, you've stumped me. All yes. right. Well, we, ha we have one more. It's a, great, it's a great question, though. We have one more question. And uh, this question is, apparently, it's a very important question. And it's from uh, a fan of yours in Nash Vegas. Did I pronounce that town right? Nash I think, Vegas? Yeah, that's, yeah I think Nash, that's in Okay, so let's, let's yeah. listen to the question from Nash Vegas. Hey, Tony, it's Phoebe. Okay, so I've got a really serious question for you about grounding principles, really foundational principles of music and playing your music. And this is really just starts with your feet, right? Your grounding principles of playing music starts with your feet. So when you're playing, tell me please how your socks affect, affect your playing. Like if you're on stage, how does the socks that you're wearing change the way you play music. All right, Tony, I can't wait to hear your, hear your answer on this very important question. That is the question I've always wanted to be asked without realizing it. And now Phoebe asked it. My God, Phoebe, you're so amazing. I would say that I would be nowhere without the proper socks on stage. Phoebe may be alluding to the fact that I've developed a line of haberdashery featuring banjo socks. And, and now banjo masks, but let's go to the banjo socks. And they're very comfortable uh, and can be ordered on my website. I think we still have some available. But when I'm playing, knowing that I'm wearing banjo socks and they feel so good, just get the right amount of pressure, not too loose, not too tight, it inspires me. Uh, I, I, I feel like I reached the heights of creativity when I'm wearing my banjo socks. Did you feel any competition wearing your banjo socks when you uh, performed on Prairie Home Companion with uh, Garrison Keeler and his socks? No, you know, I was unaware of his sock situation at that point. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yes, I know I, I did. I was not into socks in those days. In fact, 
when I was starting to get together with Steve Martin and we were doing some banjo things, I started noticing that he always had these great socks. And he was my inspiration for getting into socks. So thank you, Steve, for that. Before we leave, you'll have to give us the uh, web address so people can order these socks. Uh, I'd like to get back to your, your latest album, though. <clears throat> of course. On the Mississippi, the gambler song, and you, and you discussed that before. I want to play that track now. Do you want to say anything else about it? Absolutely. This is uh, this Riverboat Gambler song that I mentioned earlier, which was the first song that started this whole project. It talks about this Riverboat Gambler having misadventures on the Mississippi, falling in love with a, a dance hall girl, but he kills a, a man in, uh, over the girl, and he runs onto this uh, steamboat and heads, heads north and uh, is being chased by uh, the constabulary, and he decides he wants to just change his life and get away from all this and get a better life and heads to the coast, meaning in my mind into the Outer Banks of North Carolina, even though I don't say that. And uh, I've got the incre these incredible musicians who were all living in Brooklyn at the time, including Michael Daves, who sings, who's this amazing singer. And he's playing uh, that finger-picked guitar on here. And I'm playing a low-tuned banjo, tuned down to E, similar to what John Hartford used to play. Well, let's take a listen to On the Mississippi. Oh, was the A.B. Chambers, queen of the Mississippi shore. was On the Mississippi Gambler's Song from the album Shall We Hope, performed by my guest, Tony Trishka. Besides <clears throat> listening to music, I also enjoy the cover art that goes along with it. And you mentioned a book that someone gave you that was part of the inspiration for this album. By any chance, was the cover art from that book for this no, album? No, it, it actually wasn't. It was um, from... I think my friend and manager, Ben Hertzman, just happened to find that somewhere because it depicts the Battle of Gettysburg and it appeared, I'm pretty sure it was Harper's Weekly. Uh, and they had these amazing engravings that they would use for the artwork in these uh, newspapers at the time. So we just took that. And actually my son designed the cover. He didn't do the artwork, uh, you know, that amazing battle scene there. But he had these little circles, sort of pastel circles there. And he designed all the artwork uh, inside, laid it all out. So... It's a family affair. Is perfect. music also a family affair? Yes. My son, Sean Trishka, is a uh, wonderful, wonderful drummer, incredible drummer. We've done gigs together. And uh, he has two CDs out under his own name. One CD is called Corporate Punk, and the other is Sean Trishka. And he's written all the music and arranged it. It's more pop-oriented, uh, very intelligent pop music, I would say. And my daughter, Zoe, she's a... She's got great musical sensibilities, but she's not a musician. So, Speaking of pop-oriented, can you tell us, and, and maybe this is not pop-oriented, but can you tell us about Country Granola, which was once referred <laughs> to as an Amer as America's premier sports rock band? I, I'm not quite sure I know what a sports rock band is. Well, that was a, it was a, a genre that was sweeping the nation uh, in the early 70s. Okay, it wasn't sweeping the nation. We were the only one. Okay. <laughs> But uh, this was a group I was in in Syracuse, New York. I was in three food bands at the time. I was in a group called Country Cooking, another one called Country Granola, and another one called Breakfast Special, all at the same time. Anyway, Country Granola was a sports rock group because our leader, Herbo Firestein was his name. Herb, but we called him Herbo. He would write songs 
he would take sports things. He was a sports addict. And he, you know, I am a lineman for the Giants and I play the front line. And he would take these common songs and make sports songs about them. So he tried to get us to do a halftime thing for the ball, for the Celtics and that never came to pass. But, and we had cheerleaders on stage at one point, you know, that, that sort of thing. Yeah, it never really caught on for some reason. I'm not quite sure why, but yeah. As you said, the bands that you joined early in your career seem to have an Epicurean theme, country cooking, <laughs> country granola, breakfast special. Were all of these rock bands? No, no. Um, country cooking was more of, it was really a bluegrass group with a guy named Pete Warnick, who was currently in the group Hot Rise. And we were, we did, he's a wonderful banjo player and we had double banjo things we did. We did our, first album I was ever on was a country cooking album with double banjos. Breakfast Special grew out of that because a couple of the guys who recorded on country cooking albums were from New York City, Kenny Kosick and Andy Statman. And we started this group, Breakfast Special, with a dobro player named Stacey Phillips. And we were all into bluegrass, but stretching the boundaries. So we did some bluegrass. I played some steel guitar. So we did some rock things. Uh, we would do Sam Cooke songs. We would do Bill Monroe songs. We would do Jewish music. We would do Hawaiian songs. Princess Papuli has plenty of papaya. I'm sure you've heard of that song, as have, have, have all your listeners. We were kind of a crazy band doing all this nutsy stuff. And then Country Granola was more of a rock band, electric guitars and drums. And I played steel guitar and banjo in that band also. In addition to uh, producing albums, you also have an online banjo school. And as I said earlier, I failed at mastering playing the flute or carrying a tune. But more importantly, I don't read music. Would I have a place in your banjo school anywhere? Oh, absolutely. You do not have to read music. Banjo players read tablature, which basically it's, it's a five-line staff, like a music staff, but rather than having note indications, you have numbers on there, which indicates like the top line is the first string of the banjo and there's a number five there, let's say, and that would mean you fret the fifth fret of the first string in, in a relatively short period of time. Uh, it's pretty easy to decipher and figure out how that works. And uh, yeah, I have this online banjo school through ArtistWorks, the, the parent company out in California. I've been doing this for 11 years now. Just have had a great time with it. I've got over 50 interviews on there with folks like Steve Martin and Bela Fleck and J.D. Crow and Earl Scruggs and on and on and on. And people can send in videos. It's, it's not like Skype. It's not in real time, but people send in videos and it goes into a queue within a few days. Uh, or if I'm on the road, maybe it's a week, but you know, between one and seven days, depending, I'll respond to those videos and everyone on the site can see that and view those and learn from those. And I have almost 300 lessons on there from beginning to advanced with three camera shoots and close-ups of the banjo. And uh, it's, it's just a wonderful thing. And when people send in these videos, they can send in their first video. And if they're with me for a year, they can look back and say, oh, look where I was you can get a graphic demonstration of how well you've progressed. You can look at your very first thing where you can barely play, and now you're playing Earl Scruggs tunes. Uh, so it's a great way to get an overview of your banjo life uh, as you're learning. So if I wanted to sign up, what would I have to do? If you just go to Tony Trishka, T-R-I-S-C-H-K-A, it'll come up. It talks about banjo lessons. But you can put in the Tony Trishka School of Banjo, and it will come up that way also. Not only have you worked with rock bands, pop bands, breakfast bands. You've also worked on Broadway. Uh, you were the musical leader for the show Robber 
bridegroom. What was involved in that? Basically, I represented the band. It was a show that was on Broadway in 1976 with Barry Boswick. He was the uh, main character, and it was based on Eudora Weldy. A Eudora Weldy, um, Welty, sorry, short story called Robert Bridegroom. And so um, if someone had to talk to the union, that would be me. It was a bluegrass musical, basically. We had a bluegrass band on stage. We were on stage. And so that was a, a wonderful time in my life. I was in New York City and uh, we were on Broadway. We started in LA at the Mark Taper Forum. And then for two months, and it was the best, most well-received show that had ever been there. And then we moved to Broadway uh, for, I think, five months, as I remember it. I have another question moving away from Broadway to your to your album. It deals with Carry Me Over the Sea. It's a, it's another track from Shall We Hope, and it features right. Brittany Haas playing the Boron. And I don't think that's quite a bluegrass instrument, uh, but it and, and the track seems to be more maritime. Uh, can you explain how that track came about? That track came about, Brittany Haas is actually the fiddle player on there. I had someone else who happened to be in town from Ireland who's a premier Boron player which is this hand drum, uh, Irish hand drum, for those who don't know the term. I think this was, as I remember, this was the second tune I wrote. I started thinking, I want to get these various characters and have them connect. So I have this gambler going to the Outer Banks of, of North Carolina. And then this, I had made up this story about this woman uh, on the west coast of Ireland. And I've spent uh, some time in Ireland, so I had a flavor for it. And anyway, it's during the potato famine. Her husband dies in a mine, ca- mine cave in. And she decides to leave her children with relatives and come to America to start a better life. And then she sends for her children and she travels on a coffin ship. The amazing Maura O'Connell is the singer on this. She's ridiculous. She was with a group called Dedan in the 80s, which is when I first heard her, or maybe the early 90s. She just, and she's Irish and she's incredible and does an amazing job singing on this. And so she sings this story and she told me of the term coffin ship, which I'd never had heard before she she i wrote the whole tune but she came up with the line a coffin ship of exiled humanity which is an incredible incredible line and coffin ships were ships that were coming from ireland during the potato famine and people who were starving would get on these ships hoping to make it to america and many of them did they starved to death during the trip and that's why they were called coffin ships so it's a very powerful image in the song anyway she comes to the america's ends up in the Outer Banks and meets this gambler. So I connect these two in the story. And that's how that song came to pass. And I did a lot of research on my, the mine and you know what ships might have been called and names and that sort of thing. With that introduction, why don't we close our show with Carry Me Over the Sea, if that's okay with you. It's fine with me, yep. Tony Trishka, I'm so happy that you were able to take the time to speak with me. And, and I'm going to come full circle and close with... Carry Me Over the Sea. Thanks again, and I hope to hear from you again real soon. Thank you so much, Marshall. I greatly appreciate it. Gray clouds low and a handful of lime March of 50 Such a bad time Smell of peat Caught on the breeze Lost my love near Port McGee
listening to Mr. Radio, and I'm your host, Marshall. This program was written and produced by Marshall. Mr. Radio is available wherever you get your podcasts, including iTunes and Spotify. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. And don't forget to tune in next week for another episode of Mr. Radio. We barely survived the terrible blight, but now I enter the darkest night. My husband is dead, children left behind. America calls, now is the time. Carry me over the sea. Ship of exiled humanity Climbed from steerage and out of the gloom Walked down Bond Street and found